This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. Podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Alexandra Gree, January Marie, Skylar Foster, Katie Wells, Benjamin Hearn, Katie Richardson, Arkista Hansen, Lucy Chaloner, Victoria Vanderlinden, Sasha Gunn, Matthew Davenport, and Krista Phipps. Thank you all so, so much for donating. 
and being a part of making this show. And for those of you who might be new to the show, um, all the names that I just read, they are patrons of the Sleepy Podcast on Patreon.com, which is a very, very cool site where you can go on and support creators of work that you appreciate. So there's illustrators and filmmakers and, and podcasters like me on the website, and you can support their work in exchange for extra little perks like exclusive content and having your name read in the credits of the podcast. So if the show works for you, you can go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donate even a dollar a month. Um, Five dollars gets you access to the special Patreon poetry feed where I send poetry readings to you twice a month just for donating. And that is exclusive um, only for the five dollar patrons. And also, last week I said that um, anyone that donates this past week enters a drawing to win the copy of Jekyll and Hyde that I read for the show. Um, so if you donated from last Sunday to this Sunday at midnight, um, then you enter a drawing to have your name picked out of a hat, and I will send the copy of Jekyll and Hyde that I read last week on the show to you with a little note or dedication of your choosing on the inside cover. So, if you're hearing this on Sunday, um, which is the 27th of October, then you still have a chance uh, before midnight to go to patreon.com slash sleepyradio and donate even a dollar to enter the drawing and then maybe get the book sent to you. Okay, again, thank you to all our new patrons so, so much. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight, we're reading a very long-requested book, um, and I, I really wanted to read it earlier in the year, but I figured it'd be appropriate to save it for this October, since um, it fits very, very nicely into our little spooky book series. So tonight I'm reading The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux. A lot of people have requested this book, and to be clear, I'm not reading from the play. I'm reading from the original book that was written by Gaston Leroux. Anyways, I got this really big, funny copy of the book. I'm very excited to dive into it. So, hopefully this isn't too spooky for you. And uh, if it is, just know that we have 70 other episodes that you can listen to as well on the podcast feed. Alright, that is enough of me having. So tonight, we read The Phantom of the Opera. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Get real comfortable. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Close your eyes and let me read to you.
Chapter 1. Is it the ghost? It was the evening on which Mademoiselle Debine and Poligny, the managers of the opera, were giving a last gala performance to mark their retirement. Suddenly, the dressing room of La Sorley, one of the principal dancers, was invaded by half a dozen young ladies of the ballet who had come up from the stage after dancing Pauliukti. They rushed in amid great confusion, some giving vent to forced and unnatural laughter, others to cries of terror. Sorley, who wished to be alone for a moment to run through the speech which she was to make to the resigning managers, looked around angrily at the mad and tumultuous crowd. It was Little Jam, the girl with the tip-tilted nose, the forget-me-not eyes, the red rose cheeks, and the lily-white neck and shoulders who gave the explanation in a trembling voice. It's the ghost, and she locked the door. Sorley's dressing room was fitted up with official, commonplace elegance. A pier glass, a sofa, a dressing table, and a cupboard or two provided the necessary furniture. On the walls hung a few engravings, relics of the mother, who had known the glories of the old opera in the Rue Le Pelletier, portraits of Vestries, Gardel, Dupont, Bigotini. But the room seemed a palace to the brats of the corps de ballet, who were lodged in common dressing rooms where they spent their time singing, quarreling, smacking their dresses and hairdressers, and buying one another glasses of cassis beer, or even rum, until the call boy's bell rang. Sorley was very superstitious. She shuddered when she heard little Jam speak of the ghost, called her a silly little fool. And then, as she was the first to believe in ghosts in general, and the opera ghost in particular, at once asked for details. Have you seen him? As plainly as I see you now said little Jam, whose legs were giving way beneath her, and she dropped with a moan into a chair. Thereupon, little Jiri, the girl with eyes black as sloes, hair black as ink, a swarthy complexion, and a poor little skin stretched over poor little bones, little Jiri added, If that's the ghost, he's very ugly. Oh yes, cried the chorus of ballet girls, and they all began to talk together. The ghost had appeared to them in the shape of a gentleman in dress clothes who had suddenly stood before them in the passage without their knowing where he came from. He seemed to have come straight through the wall. Pooh, said one of them, who had more or less kept her head. You see the ghost everywhere. And it was true. For several months there had been nothing discussed at the opera but this ghost in dress clothes who stalked about the building from top to bottom like a shadow who spoke to nobody, to whom nobody dared speak and who vanished as soon as he was seen, no one knowing how or where. As became a real ghost, he made no noise in walking. People began by laughing and making fun of this specter dressed like a man of fashion or an undertaker but the ghost legend soon swelled to enormous proportions 
among the corps de ballet. All the girls pretended to have met this supernatural being more or less often, and those who laughed the loudest were not the most at ease. When he did not show himself, he betrayed his presence or his passing by accident, comic or serious, for which the general superstition held him responsible. Had anyone met with a fall or suffered practical joke at the hands of one of the other girls or lost a powder puff, it was at once the fault of the ghost, of the opera ghost. After all, who had seen him? You meet so many men in dress clothes at the opera who are not ghosts, but this dress zoo had a peculiarity of its own, a cover of skeleton, at least so the ballet girls said, and of course it had a death's head. Was all this serious? The truth is that the idea of the skeleton came from the description of the ghost given by Joseph Bouquet, the chief scene shifter, who had really seen the ghost. He had run up against the ghost on a little staircase by the footlights, which leads to the cellars. He had seen him for a second, but the ghost had fled, and to anyone who cared to listen to him, he said, He is extraordinarily thin and his dress coat hangs in a skeleton frame. His eyes are so deep that you can hardly see the fixed pupils. You just see two big black holes, as in a dead man's skull. His skin, which is stretched across bone like a drumhead, is not white, but a nasty yellow. His nose is so little worth talking about that you can't see its side face. And the absence of the nose is a horrible thing to look at. All the hair he has is three or four long dark locks on his forehead and behind his ears. This chief scene shifter was a serious, sober, steady man, very slow at imagining things. His words are received with interest and amazement, and soon there were other people to say, they too, had been a man in dress clothes with a death's head on his shoulders. Sensible men who had wind of the story began by saying that Joseph Bouquet had been the victim of a joke played by one of his assistants. And then, one after the other, there came a series of incidents so curious and so inexplicable that the very shrewdest people began to feel uneasy. For instance, the fireman is a brave fellow. He fears nothing, least of all fire. Well, the fireman in question, who had gone to make a round of inspection in the cellars, and who, it seems, had ventured a little farther than usual, suddenly reappeared on the stage, pale, scared, trembling, with his eyes starting out of his head, and practically fainted in the arms of the proud mother of little Jam. And why? Because he had seen coming toward him, at the level of his head, but without a body attached to it, a head of fire. And as I said, a fireman is not afraid of fire. The fireman's name was Pampin. The corps de ballet was flung into consternation. 
At first sight, this fiery head in no way corresponded with Joseph Bouquet's description of the ghost. But the young ladies soon persuaded themselves that the ghost had several heads, which he changed about as he pleased. And of course, they at once imagined that they were in the greatest danger. Once a fireman did not hesitate to faint. Leaders and front row and back row girls alike had plenty of excuses for the fright that made them quicken their pace when passing some dark corner or ill-lighted corridor. Sorely yourself, on the day after the adventure with the fireman, placed a horseshoe on the table in front of the stage doorkeeper's box, which everyone who entered the opera otherwise than as a spectator must touch before setting foot on the first tread of the staircase. This horseshoe was not invented by me any more than any other part of this story, alas, and may still be seen on the table in the passage outside the stage doorkeeper's box when you enter the opera through the court known as the Court of Administration. To return to the evening in question, it's the ghost, little Jam had cried. An agonizing silence now reigned in the dressing room. Nothing was heard but the hard breathing of the girls. At last, Jam, flinging herself upon the farthest corner of the wall, with every mark of real terror on her face, whispered, Listen. Everybody seemed to hear a rustling outside the door. There was no sound of footsteps. It was like light silk sliding over the panel. Then it stopped. Sorely tried to show more pluck than the others. She went up to the door and, in a quavering voice, asked, Who's there? But nobody answered. Then feeling all eyes upon her, watching her last movement, she made an effort to show courage and said very loudly, Is there anyone behind the door? Oh, yes, yes, of course there is, cried that little dried plum of a magjiri, heroically holding sorely back by her gauze skirt. Whatever you do, don't open the door. Oh, Lord, don't open the door. But sorely, armed with a dagger that never left her, turned the key and drew back the door while the ballet girls retreated to the inner dressing room and Magjiri sighed, Mother, Mother. Sorely looked into the passage bravely. It was empty. A gas flame in its glass prison cast a red and suspicious light into the surrounding darkness without succeeding in dispelling it. And the dancer slammed the door again with a deep sigh. No, she said. There is no one there. Still, we saw him, Jam declared, returning with timid little steps to her place beside Sorley. He must be somewhere prowling about. I shan't go back to dress. We had better all go down to the foyer together at once for the speech and we will come up again together. And the child reverently touched the little coral finger ring 
which she wore as a charm against bad luck, which sorely, stealthily, with the tip of her pink right thumbnail, made a St. Andrew's cross on the wooden ring which adorned the fourth finger of her left hand. She said to the little ballet girls, Come, children, pull yourselves together. I dare say no one has ever seen the ghost. Yes, yes, we saw him. We saw him just now, cried the girls. He had his death's head and his dress coat, just as when he appeared to Joseph Bouquet. And Gabriel saw him too, said Jam, only yesterday. Yesterday afternoon, in broad daylight. Gabriel, the chorus master. Why, yes, didn't you know? And he was wearing his dress clothes in broad daylight. Who, Gabriel? Why, no, the ghost. Certainly, Gabriel told me so himself. That's what he knew him by. Gabriel was in the stage manager's office. Suddenly the door opened and the Persian entered. You know the Persian has the evil eye. Oh yes, answered the little ballet girls in chorus, warding off ill luck by pointing their forefinger and little finger at the absent Persian, while their second and third fingers were bent on the palm and held down by the thumb. And you know how superstitious Gabriel is, continued Jam. However, he is always polite. When he meets the Persian, he just puts his hand in his pocket and touches his keys. Well, the moment the Persian appeared in the doorway, Gabriel gave one jump from his chair to the lock of the cupboard so as to touch iron. In doing so, he tore a whole skirt of his overcoat on a nail. Hurrying to get out of the room, he banged his forehead against a hat peg and gave himself a huge bump. Then, suddenly stepping back, he skinned his arm on the screen near the piano. He tried to lean on the piano, but the lid fell on his hands and crushed his fingers. He rushed out of the office like a madman, slipped on the staircase, and came down the hole of the first flight on his back. I was just passing with Mother when we picked him up. He was covered with bruises, and his face was all over blood. We were frightened out of our lives, but all at once he began to thank Providence that he had got off so cheaply. Then he told us what had frightened him. He had seen the ghost behind the Persian, the ghost with the death's head, just like Joseph Bouquet's description. Jam had told her story ever so quickly, as though the ghost were at her heels and was quite out of breath at the finish. A silence followed, while Sora Lee polished her nails in great excitement. It was broken by little Jerry, who said, Joseph Bouquet would do better to hold his tongue. Why should he hold his tongue, asked somebody. That's mother's opinion, replied Meg lowering her voice and looking all about her, as though fearing lest other ears than those present might overhear. And why is it your mother's opinion? Hush. Mother says the ghost doesn't like being talked about. And why does your mother say so? Because, because, 
nothing. The reticence exasperated the curiosity of the young ladies who crowded around little Jiri, begging her to explain herself. They were there, side by side, leaning forward simultaneously in one movement of entreaty and fear, communicating their terror to one another, taking a keen pleasure in feeling their blood freeze in their veins. I swore not to tell, gasped Meg, but they left her no peace and promised to keep her secret until Meg, burning to say all she knew, began with her eyes fixed on the door. Well, it's because of the private box. What private box? The ghost box. Has the ghost a box? Oh, do tell us, do tell us. Not so loud, said Meg. It's box five, you know. The box on the grand tier next to the stage box on the left. Oh, nonsense. I tell you it is. Mother has charge of it. You swear you won't say a word? Of course, of course. Well, that's the ghost box. No one has had it for over a month, except the ghost. And orders have been given at the box office that it must never be sold. And does the ghost really come there? Yes. Then somebody does come. Why, no, the ghost comes but there is nobody there. The little ballet girls exchanged glances. If the ghost came to the box, he must be seen, because he wore a dress coat and a death's head. This was what they tried to make Meg understand, but she replied, that's just it. The ghost is not seen, and he has no dress coat and no head. All that talk about his death's head his head of fire is nonsense. There's nothing in it. You only hear him when he's in the box. Mother has never seen him, but she has heard him. Mother knows because she gives him his program. Sorely interfered. Jerry, child, you're getting at us. Thereupon, little Jerry began to cry. I ought to have held my tongue mother ever came to know. But I was quite right. Joseph Bouquet had no business to talk of things that don't concern him. It will bring him bad luck. Mother was saying so last night. There was a sound of hurried and heavy footsteps in the passage, and a breathless voice cried, Cecile, Cecile, are you there? It's mother's voice, said Jim. What's the matter? She opened the door. A respectable lady, built on the lines of a Pomeranian grenadier, burst into the dressing room and dropped groaning into a vacant armchair. Her eyes rolled madly in her brick-dust-colored face. How awful, she said, how awful. What, what? Joseph Bouquet. What about him? Joseph Bouquet is dead. The room became filled with exclamations, with astonished outcries, with sacred requests for explanations. Yes, he was found hanging in the third floor cellar. It's the ghost, little Jerry blurted, 
as though in spite of herself. But she at once corrected herself, with her hands pressed to her mouth. No, no, I didn't say it, I didn't say it. All around her, her panic-stricken companions repeated under their breaths, Yes, it must be the ghost. Sorely was very pale. I shall never be able to recite my speech, she said. Ma Jam gave her opinion. While she'd emptied a glass of liquor that happened to be standing on the table, the ghost must have something to do with it. The truth is that no one ever knew how Joseph Bouquet met his death. The verdict at the inquest was natural suicide. In his memoirs of manager, Monsieur Marcharmin, one of the joint managers who succeeded Mademoiselle Devian and Poligny, describes the incident as follows. A grievous accident spoiled the little party which Mademoiselle Devian and Poligny gave to celebrate their retirement. I was in the manager's office when Mercier, the acting manager, suddenly came darting in. He seemed half mad and told me that the body of a scene shifter had been found hanging in the third cellar under the stage between a farmhouse and a scene from the Rue de Lore. I shouted, Come and cut him down. By the time I had rushed down the staircase and the Jacob's Ladder, the man was no longer hanging from his rope. So this is an event which Monsieur Montcherman thinks natural. A man hangs at the end of a rope. They go to cut him down. The rope has disappeared. Oh, Monsieur Montcherman found a very simple explanation. Listen to him. It was just after the ballet, and leaders and dancing girls lost no time in taking their precautions against the evil eye. There you are. Picture the corps de ballet scuttling down the Jacob's ladder and dividing the suicide's rope among themselves in less time than it takes to write. When, on the other hand, I think of the exact spot where the body was discovered, the third cellar underneath the stage. Imagine that somebody must have been interested in seeing that the rope disappeared after it had affected its purpose. And time will show if I am wrong. The horrid news soon spread all over the opera, where Joseph Bouquet was very popular. The dressing rooms emptied, and the ballet girls, crowding around sorely like timid sheep around their shepherdess, made for the foyer through the ill-lit passages and staircases, trotting as fast as their little pink legs could carry them. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.